Welcome to Small Places, the podcast where you can listen to conversations on challenging adultism, understanding children's rights, and fight for children's liberation. I'm your host, Eloise Rickman, and I'll be talking to activists, academics, educators, authors, and those who are on the front lines of this vital work. If you enjoy listening, why not sign up to Small Places on Substack, where you'll find essays, Q&As, and many more resources. You can join for free, or you can subscribe for just £5 a month to support my work and help me bring you more conversations just like this one. Now for this week's episode. Today I'm speaking with Dr Naomi Fisher. Naomi is an independent psychologist who has specialised in autism, trauma and alternative education. And she has a special interest in self-directed education and how this can support all children, but particularly neurodivergent children, to thrive rather than survive their education. We're going to be talking today predominantly about her book, A Different Way to Learn, Neurodiversity and Self-Directed Education, which was published earlier this year. But as you'll hear, our conversation took us to lots of different places. I really hope that you'll enjoy it. I'm so delighted to be talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Your book, A Different Way to Learn, has been such a gift, I think, to so many people. I keep talking about it with people and people recommending it to me saying, have you read this book? It's brilliant. It reads absolutely up your street. So I'm so thrilled to be chatting to you. Um, For anyone who hasn't come across your work yet, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm Dr. Naomi Fisher. I'm a clinical psychologist by training, um, but I also have a long-standing interest in autism and neurodiversity. In fact, I did a PhD in autism before I did my clinical training. Um, And I, well, there's so much to say. It's almost hard to know where to start, but basically I, as a clinical psychologist, I specialize in trauma and I also specialize in autism. And then I've developed this strong interest through my experience with my own children on in alternative ways of learning Mm -hmm. and different ways that we can become educated and I've written two books about that so there was Changing Our Minds which was 2021 and then A Different Way to Learn which was specifically about neurodiversity and that was 2023 when that one came out. Amazing thank you so much for that and I think this book is so well timed because the landscape and the situation in the UK at the moment feels pretty grim in a lot of ways in mm. terms of both funding for children with you know neurodiversity or special educational needs as they're often known in terms of how easy and quick and accessible it is to get assessments in the first place you know we're hearing mm. of people who are spending two three four years on waiting lists um it feels in some ways like school culture is also has changed quite a lot under the conservative government Mm. um, with schools becoming in many cases more rigid more structured higher expectations academically Um, and alongside this we've seen a complete lack of funding in some circumstances for children's mental health services as well with CAMS being in crisis a lot of the time and all of this feels like it is adding up to something really quite devastating for a lot of children and I'm wondering you know you've been doing this work for a long time now if you're Mm -hmm. seeing this correspondingly in your work at the moment yes absolutely I mean I think unfortunately I think we've got a system a school system which is becoming less and less fit for children and I think the results of that are that we see children in distress and -hmm. children not managing the demands and I think that the response, so I think we see that in a number of ways. We see that in how children, lots of children are not wanting to attend school. And there's a lot of sort of talk about how a school attendance crisis, that kind of thing. Then we see lots of distress. So again, mental health difficulties. And the way that all those things are being responded to is punitively, generally. Mm-hmm. So particularly with attendance, there's a really strong push to get them back into school. And I think with children, we so often see the behavior as the problem. So for example, a child isn't attending school, you'll see all this stuff about attendance group policy groups and attendance policies. And it's all about as if the attendance is the problem. And what I'm always saying is what we see is just the tip of the iceberg. It's the symptom. Attendance, a child not wanting to attend school is a symptom of all sorts of other things. What else is going on that's meaning that this child isn't wanting to attend school? And I think we've got a strong focus 
in our culture on there must be something wrong with that child that means they don't want to attend school or there must be something um, we must be able to find a diagnosis for that child we must be able to assess that child but very little looking at what's going on in our schools that mean that so many children are not happy there and don't want to go and how might we be changing our schools so that they fitted a much wider group of children rather than what we've got at the moment which is let's push the children in let's make them attend as much as we can and the ones who can't well we'll have to kind of channel them off somewhere else but we'll cut funding to that as well <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's a kind of it's an impossible situation yeah. I think for families and children yeah. and schools actually as well I don't think schools I think many schools I don't think this is something that most schools are choosing it's being imposed yes. upon them yeah I think it must be really difficult for everyone and I love that in your book, you use the phrase, you know, you either have blame, which is the traditional sort of, the child is naughty, they're yes. misbehaving, or you have the brain model, which in some <laughs> yeah. ways feels a bit more progressive, but it is still yeah. looking at sort of, well, there's a, there's almost a problem within the child, they have this diagnosis, yeah. they have some kind of deficit. And it yes. really does take this deficit model rather than seeing the child as a whole person who is thriving, yes. who is themselves. Exactly. And where, as you say, you know, it's the it's the environment that they're in which is the problem yeah yes I think the blame or blame or brain thing is so important because you see it everywhere that the first thing that happens if a child's struggling is it's always they need to be more motivated they mm. need to be make more effort or else it's their parents who are being blamed the parents need yes. to try harder and you see a lot of that in the media about how feckless parents aren't getting their children out of bed on time or you know there's things like parents have just got used to working from home and so they let the kids stay at home and it's all this kind of air of those <laughs> parents who just don't really value education um you know we just need to get them going and they'll get the kids to school so there's the whole blame thing and then there's the oh well maybe this child has got something wrong with them which mm. means that they don't fit into school and I think that lets the school system off the hook yes. it lets culture off the hook because it says we've got these children who are different they don't need they need something different but everybody else is fine they're not fine the yeah. majority of them are not fine and I think the you only have to dig a tiny bit to find mm. how unfine they are and to hear about what's going on in our schools, the policies that are going on in our schools, because even the, you know, I see young people, so I work therapeutically, I work with children, adolescents and adults. I see sometimes adolescents who are really high achieving in theory, you know, they're doing well at school, they're getting their A's and all that, whatever it is. And they absolutely feel like they have no interest in what they're doing. Mm. There was a there was a study by the Edge Foundation. I think it came out maybe last year or earlier this year, which showed that the majority of adolescents see school as just something they've got to get through. Yeah. And I think what a tragic thing to do to our young people. Yeah. You know, adolescence is this time of finding yourself of learning who you are how you work what a terrible thing we're doing to put them in this process where it's just got to get through this to get to the next thing yeah. what are we losing as a culture when we do that absolutely I really felt like that I was one of those classic sort of high achievers and yet at secondary school I enjoyed the social side of it I loved seeing my yeah. friends but it really just felt like this is just a slog to get through. A couple <laughs> of classes maybe stood out as having good teachers, exciting teaching, yep. but the rest was really just, you know, slogging from one period to the next period yes. until you could get home and do real life of hanging out <laughs> with your friends and listening to the radio together and, you know, yeah. hanging out and having fun. Um, and, and how sad is that? And also how sad is that that the high achievers feel like that as well? No, absolutely. Because I remember that feeling too. It's just like, oh gosh, yeah, nothing is really exciting. And I think we kill that interest in our children because we see our mm. little children who are full of excitement and full of enthusiasm. And by the time they get to teenagers, it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and I think it's understandable because of what are we doing to them in our education system. Yeah. But I know because so my children haven't gone to school uh, well actually they sort of have now but it's a bit different so anyway that's a different thing but they were home educated for the first for the first sort of 10 years really and I just saw how differently young people can learn when they're outside that school setting wow. and because I've kind of developed an interest in that so I've now talked to hundreds and hundreds of families of children who didn't go don't go to school yeah. uh, a lot of whom are neurodivergent as well mm. And you hear the stories of how it can be if yeah. they don't go to school. And that was such a surprise to me, you know, and I started to think. So I, when I was at university, I studied child development um, and developmental psychology. 
And I started to think, you know, no one ever said when I was studying child development, developmental psychology, this is all about developmental psychology in the context of children who go to school. Yes. Because it never even occurred to me at university that they were only looking at children who went to school. Yeah. And, it, you know, home educated children were completely absent. Yeah. And it was this, it was as if school is this massive invisible intervention, which yes. we all assume is simply how things are. And what if it's not? <laughs> you know, what if it isn't how things are? What would we see differently then? And I love that you talk about that in your book as well. Something which really struck me was how you talk about the fact that school, you know, normally when we have a big intervention, whether it's a psychological intervention or an economic intervention, we yeah. like to think that that is based on some kind of research or best practice or something. Yet you say, you know, we have had the introduction of mass schooling with absolutely no research. And actually, if we were to look at how do children best learn, how do children thrive, we would end up with something that is completely different to the school yes. system that we have yes. now. Yet we see it as this neutral sort of benevolent thing totally neutral and benevolent it's exactly how it is good for everybody isn't it it's a good thing like yes there are so many things about that that I could talk about but (laughs) the the the, and I think it's I think it's the thing that we all learn at school school is good school is useful school is worth promoting under all circumstances Mm. because we all agree that school is a good thing and yeah. I'm a bit of a maverick and I like to think, well, what if we didn't know that? What would that, what is that? Do we really know that? How do we know that? <laughs> Absolutely. And they talk about things being, you know, research based or best practice. Yeah. And it's always within the context of children in school. And also yeah. something that feels increasingly problematic to me is that all of this research is also done through an adult lens it's done by mm-hmm. adults asking questions looking yep. to serve sort of adult purposes yes. and actually if we included children in that research ask them what do you want to know about the school system what do you want to know about how you learn I imagine we would end up with very different research questions very different answers very different yeah. methodologies um so it yes it's a good we, point yeah, yeah given that we claim this is for children yes it it's for children to do the things we want them to do Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. And I really appreciated that in the book, you talk about how even when you went to primary school, you know, you it didn't have a particularly terrible experience, Mm. but it was just low key bad, basically, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is just something so many people will be able to recognize. You know, it's not just those children who are finding school completely intolerable, but Mm. for so many people, it is just this sort of this small chip chipping away at your autonomy and at your sort of bodily knowledge of yourself you know that embodiment of knowing when you need to move or eat or go to the loo or knowing what you're interested in that's the thing that I feel most that I lost at school Mm. I feel like it was gradually stripped away from me and I see my own young children how much they know what fascinates them and it's so idiosyncratic and so like completely not what an adult might think is important you know young children are just amazing in what they decide is really interesting and that's what they want to know about and then as we go through school we're consistently told no that's not as important as what we think you should be doing which is maths mm-hmm. and English and phonics and that sort of thing and that is more important and it's like a kind of muting of your a suppressing of the child's own sense of what I think is valuable mm. because we tell them all the time what they think is valuable isn't really valuable it's not yeah. as worthwhile it's trivial it's they're banned from bringing Pokemon cards into school you know everything has this message what you want to do less important than what we want you to do and I think that has to have that does have an impact on us because I'm mm-hmm. I don't know what about your experience but certainly my experience was I got to the end of school and I had been really well trained in how to do well so I did well I could do well and pretty well across the school board that you know that wasn't a problem but I actually had no idea what really interested me. So I remember one, actually, I remember a thing when I was about 14 or 15 and choosing my GCSEs and then my A-levels and the teacher said, what does, what interests you? And I was like, there's nothing, there's no question really about what here interests me here. It's just which teacher do I like and who's likely mm. to be more interesting. That is it. You know, I don't care whether the teacher is teaching me German or physics or music. If the teacher is nice and engaging and the classroom is interesting, that's what I'm that's what I'm choosing it for. Mm. I'm not choosing it because of the subject. 
And I feel for myself, I feel it took me to the third year of university where I was actually choosing something because I was interested in it. Wow. And I and I mean, and that was because of the university I went to, because yeah. I actually went to university to do medical sciences. So wow. I went to university to do medicine. Yeah. And I actually, in retrospect, wasn't really interested in medicine or medical sciences, but I did it because it was a high status thing to do. Yeah. Because, you know, that's what I'd done the right A levels for it. Uh, well, I hadn't done the I level, I'd done the International Baccalaureate, but I'd done the right sixth form stuff to do yes. that. And then luckily for me, the university that I was at had a system where you could choose something different in your third year. Mm. So I did the two years of medicine and then I had one year before I would go on to clinical school to do something different. And that year didn't matter. It didn't, as long as I passed it, it did not matter what I did in that year because I'd already passed my medical exams. So that was the first time since I was 14, I was able to choose to do something. In fact, of course, you don't choose things before you're 14 anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you're not allowed, you're not given any choice before you're 14. So, but every choice I'd made at like 14 or at 16, they weren't real choices because they were forced choices. It was like, what am I going to do well at? Which teacher do I like? It wasn't, if I could learn about what I want to learn about, what would I learn about? Yeah. And so I got to that third year of university and I could choose to do psychology. And I did. And it was, it just felt like a bit of an out there choice. Yeah. Um, because medics actually they didn't all do psychology a lot of them did things like physiology or biochemistry which I knew yeah. was not my stuff and I did the psychology and I was like my goodness this is what learning should be about I'm well, so interested in this I just can't stop learning about it I'm just like reading it for fun and this is the first time really in my life that I've had the freedom to do that and I just feel that's so wrong that's what we should be trying to do for our 11 year olds yeah our 12 year olds we shouldn't yes. be making people wait till the third year at an elite university when they get to do that and it was just luck that I did that if I'd gone to another university I'd probably have been, probably would have been an unhappy doctor hmm. because I would have been on that treadmill and I would have kept on going anyway I've got digressed hugely. no that is it, but it's I think that is such a powerful example isn't it of how what really interests me is that in primary school, some children, you know, children aren't given a lot of choice, but children might yeah. be given generally a little bit more freedom to move around yes. a little bit more or to be a little bit more flexible. And then yeah. actually at secondary school, actually, as children are, I think, becoming more and more capable and competent to make these big decisions about the things that they're interested in, they want to study. And, you know, by that point, they would hopefully have been introduced to enough things that they would yeah. have some idea in an ideal world of what they're interested yeah. in we really clamp down on clamp them. down on, clamp them. Down on yeah. any sense of individuality any sense of um transgression and yeah. I don't know don't I was... think it, it's so ironic the place where there's most freedom in our education system is at nursery it's nursery the three and four year olds they're allowed to get up and go to the toilet if they want to <laughs> <laughs> and they can often wear what they want yes. and there's a look that we allow those children to make choices and by the time they're 14 we're like no 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 yeah. no no choices for you I think we're really afraid of teenagers yes I think we are too it's it's almost like the more yes the older they get the more we think we must control them mm -hmm. yeah, yeah I think the whole thing's back to front yeah I agree and something that I I'm increasingly interested in writing about and thinking about is children's resistance mm -hmm. and how children resist these often very controlling structures that they're in and I know that for me I spent a lot of time at secondary school actively resisting the rules even though mm -hmm. I knew I would get in trouble for it and I knew I would have detentions and I yeah. still there was something which you know I don't think I could have articulated it at the time but there was just this innate deep need to push back as much as possible mm -hmm. even though the rewards you know of wearing like oversized earrings or wearing the wrong sorts of trousers were really yeah. not proportional to you know the amount yeah. of time I spent in detention for example yeah and I think that there is this sense you know whether it is someone breaking the rules or whether that is someone refusing to go to school I think these things are often seen as sort of pathological rather mm. than a real resistance to often health. Like, I think it's health. <laughs> yeah 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 it's the opposite I don't think it's pathological at all I think the children who stand up and say no I'm not having anything to do with oh. this those are the ones I have the most hope for really because it's the ones yeah. who are complying 
who have switched off any sense of hang on a minute why are you making me do this Mm. that oh I don't think I want to be doing this those are the ones who I think in the longer term we need to be worried about more Mm, that's a great way of putting it and I I don't know if I think it was in your book I know you've definitely spoken about this online as well Mm. um in terms of for example the as it's called sort of school refusal yeah I think you were talking about how often the approach when a child is refusing to go to school is to do almost kind of exposure therapy style intervention right it's like oh you can sit in the car with your parents and then go in for like an hour and then come back I think this just completely misunderstands the problem that this child is facing can you talk a little bit more about that because I know this is something so many parents are wondering how to support their children with at the moment yes so exposure therapy is a therapy for anxiety and it it can work really well for anxiety so I use I have used exposure therapy say for example with people who are anxious about driving Mm-hmm. And you'd literally get them to sit in the seat of the car until they feel a bit less anxious about it. Fair enough. Uh, but there are a couple of things which happen when it gets converted to children in school. One is that is that that there is the assumption that this child is irrationally anxious about school in the same way as somebody might be irrationally anxious about driving. And what I mean by irrational anxiety is that their fear of it is in disproportion to how dangerous the situation actually is. So if you've had a car accident, for example, your brain may well start to feel like any car is really dangerous. Mm -hmm. And that's completely understandable because that car was really dangerous in one situation. But actually, you know, the number of times we have a car accident in proportion to the number of times we get in the car isn't that high. And so actually the fear is over. It's too much. It's, It's disproportionate. So there's the assumption that school anxiety can be treated in the same way, that the child is disproportionately anxious about school. And actually, if they get there, they'll see it's not so bad and, you know, think the anxiety will come down again. Um, And well, I think this is part of the brain or blame problem where we're putting the problem in the child's brain. We're effectively saying the problem here is that this child's brain is reacting in a way that experiences school as a threat they're wrong so therefore if we give them the opportunities they'll learn that it's not I think that misses the point because for some children school does feel like a threat all the time and (laughs) or school does feel very oppressive or they are deeply unhappy at school and one of the reasons I know that is because I was like that I remember that experience and I know that exposure therapy would have just made me much more unhappy because Mm. the message there would have been you are the problem, you're the one who's irrational. And therefore, you know, if we just let you do an hour a day and then two hours a day, you'll get used to it and it will be okay. And yeah. you'll fit in with everybody else. And I didn't think that was going to happen because mm-hmm. I didn't, and I, I think I was right. I think the school I was at was not a good place for me. There were many reasons why I wasn't happy there. And I think when we locate it in the child like that, we stop looking at why is it not okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's it. I I have written you right. I don't think I wrote it in that book, but I have I write about it quite a lot online because I do get yeah. asked about it a lot. And people sometimes suggest the whole anxiety thing is interesting because where the way that we talk about school attendance barriers has changed over time. So mm. school refusal is now thought of as quite an outdated term because yeah. it implies that the problem is that the child is refusing to go to school. Yeah. So when we talked about school refusal, often the strategies used by schools and by parents were to a behavioral strategy basically punish the child if they don't go reward them if they do go and you still see this kind of strategy Mm. used parents tell me that they're told things like make home boring if the child doesn't go to school don't interact with them you know just kind of make them dress up in their uniform all day and sit by themselves and so forth really really quick depressed child and a depressed family in my experience So people sometimes talk about anxiety as a more humane approach to the child. We're not seeing it as bad behavior anymore. We're seeing it as school-based anxiety. And so we need to treat the anxiety. But it's still just, in my mind, it isn't that different. It still says the problem's the child's head, the child's behavior, the child's anxiety. Let's change that and then they'll be okay at school. Mm. But what if school isn't okay? Yeah. How would we ever know when we just assume the problem's the children all the time? 
Absolutely. I think that's such an important reframe for everyone involved, you know, whether it is mm. any you know, professionals, any teachers, parents, it feels like the whole thing is about looking at how do we make the environment tolerable. And this seems like something which is so much more structural rather than Yes, it's um, not just about tweaks at an individual no. school. It can be. Some schools can make tweaks and that could really help. Yeah. But really, I think I think that we're depoliticizing our children's distress mm. by making it into a mental health problem, an SEN problem. We're making it into something that's just about these kids and we're not looking at what's going on in the schools. And even when they're introducing, you know, there's lots of you, you you mentioned a bit about the changes in the concert since this government has been in place and how I think schools are getting more rigid. I think there's also been a push towards that after COVID, yeah. where it's like the response to children's behavior is to clamp down more control, more pressure. Um, and no, I get, that's another thing that people don't look at. It's not done in an evidence based way because. The when when people do research in schools, they tend to look at specific outcomes, and the outcomes they tend to look at are results, test results, exam results. And once you've done that, you've basically really narrowed down your research immediately. And if you're not looking at school-related distress, for example, mm -hmm. as one of your outcomes, you're just not going to see it because lots of children may be really distressed, really unhappy, and still actually get through their GCSEs and yeah. do okay and they will come appear as successes when actually they may well be carrying the legacy of what's gone on at school for a long time mm. yeah it's not something that just goes away when you leave school and I also wonder if uh, this focus on results and you know we're seeing increasing numbers of children being excluded from school whether that's short-term suspensions or full-on sort of okay we are expelling you from the school mm. I was reading an article recently about how even like very young four five-year-old children yeah. and now there's a big increase in post kind of COVID these very young children being told well we just can't handle you and mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I imagine the impact of that throughout your life to be told at such a tiny age, you know, four or five year old children to yeah. be told there's something so wrong with you that we cannot have you in our community, that we cannot support you. It just feels utterly heartbreaking. And for their parents as well. Yeah. I think really, really difficult for parents because parents often feel so blamed mm. when children don't manage in an environment. And yeah, I think we need to be looking at what's going on in the environments that we're putting our young children into, particularly this generation who have been through the pandemic. Mm. And we don't really know what the long-term implications of that is going to be for them. But it was a very big life experience for them in very formative years. Yes. And then they've only really been, that's only really been acknowledged in my experience in terms of a deficit. It's always like, you know, they're not where they should be. They're yeah. not, well, okay, but this is this happened to an entire generation. So it's not like they're behind some other phantom generation who yes. didn't go through COVID. <laughs> this whole generation have gone through this. So yes, maybe their language is behind. Maybe their social emotional stuff is behind. Mm. So what are we going to do to manage that as a whole group rather yeah. than oh gosh, we need to, you know, we need to say we've, we've got even more children who need therapy. And what about if we just said, mm. like, I would love it if, if, if people would be able to say, what about if the whole school system could just kind of drop down a year yeah. for this group? So we just have another year of play, another year, you know, I mean, just let's take the pressure off yeah. everybody for a bit. So we have a bit more time mm. to get used to being back in school and being back in normal life and all that kind of thing. But I don't think that, ha that has happened at all. No, and it feels like quite the opposite. Um, I was talking to someone recently who was looking for just a childminder for a few days a week for her three-year-old, and she mm. home educates. I was yeah. trying to home educate, but just needed a little bit of time in the week. Yeah. I was saying it's so hard to find any kind of childcare where the yeah. focus in her area isn't on school readiness. And this is a three-year-old. <laughs> and it yeah. used to be, obviously, but reception year was yes. the school readiness year. And that was to be that transition between, you know, nursery, yeah. which was totally play-based, and year one, which was supposed to be the first year. Yeah. And now you're seeing, you know, reception as being that first year. And actually, in some cases, the kind of last, the preschool year, from three and a half to four and a half, and it just feels like, again, we have this real misunderstanding of how children thrive and what yes. children need to be, you know, happy it's because, and delighted. It's because they're Ofsted inspected 
um, childminders are offset inspected and I've seen the amount of paperwork they have to do and it's all about how is what are these child mm. goals and how are they meeting these goals and how are we getting them to do more and how are we getting them to develop mm. their number concept we've got yeah. obsession with children with academic skills we think yes. that reading and writing and maths is everything mm. and the lower we the, the younger we start it the better and the research doesn't show that at all it doesn't show that you need to start number concepts with one you know you just need to embrace it in, in, enrich their environment so that their environment is full of these things so that they can learn and explore what we don't need to be doing is formalizing everything and also I think I think it's quite harmful the way that we're comparing children against each other very early on so parents are being told that their children are behind really quickly and when you start to think of your child as behind and the child starts to think of themselves as behind that we know that that has long-term implications yeah. for the for the whole of their school career but yet it's it's coming back to the kind of blame model again and I think it all comes that you know that maybe if we tell them they're behind they'll work harder and catch up yeah. or maybe if we suspend them they'll realize just how bad their behavior is and they'll stop and it's like it's a model that doesn't work and yet yeah. we're trying it and the and the more we push it the more harm it does to the children. And I hadn't realised this, but this is something I came across in a research for the book I've just finished writing, mm-hmm. is that not only do we set children, as we call it, in primary school, but a yeah. lot of nurseries are also <laughs> setting children from age two. And yeah, it's, and they were saying, you know, this is, the, the research shows that like children are aware of it. You know, you yeah, call it like are. cherry yeah. table and apple table or whatever, but like children really do understand yeah and again it seems to me so like just a complete lack of understanding both of what children need but also the fact that actually being in like a multi-ability group mm-hmm. is really good for all children um yeah my daughter's home educated and she recently said she wanted to start a little book club with some of her friends so I just facilitated a session had four children all of whom were at really quite different ability levels in terms of reading and writing yeah and I gave them some you know suggested activities and it was so beautiful seeing how for example one child who really struggles with reading you know her friend wasn't like oh she was just like okay well like let me tell you what it says and yeah just having the ability to be like really supported in your skill learning by people who are your peers and to also be able to share your experience with people who are your peers and I yeah. feel like with this obsession with setting and ranking and grading children, yeah, we, we really no, do something. I agree. That's one of the things I really noticed that was different with my children as well, being home educated. I remember it was a surprise to me when they were about seven or eight, realizing that they didn't rank their friends as clever yeah. or not clever, or they didn't know how well they could read. They didn't know how well they could do these things because it just wasn't being pushed in their face at all. So they had no concept of being a good or bad of a different thing. Well, they did. They knew that you could be skilled at something or not skilled at something, but they didn't see it as a kind of reflection on that person's inner worth. Yes. You know, it was more just like, yes, this person can't swim yet. And this person can't read yet. And this person can't play Minecraft yet. And (laughs) it's all kind of on the same level. It's not, there's not this same thing of, this is the thing that's really important and we are going to compare you against Mm. your other, your peers and we're going to rank you. And you will know that because children do five and six year olds know that they're being ranked. And I think also the bit you you mentioned sort of success. I think that one of the real ironies of our school system is the focus on success and results and ranking. And then we end in England with these exams, GCSEs, where 30% of our young people will fail them. And it's set up like that. The exams are set up like that. But most young people don't know that. Most Mm -hmm. parents don't know that. And so we're feeding them this lie, really, all the way through. You can all succeed. You can't, actually. They cannot all succeed. We've got a system that does not allow them all to succeed. So what are we going to do about that 30%? Mm. Because they're going to be there no matter what. You can put all the pressure on you want. You can get them to do hours of homework. There's still going to be 30% over the whole country, not necessarily in your school. But of course, in your school, if you've got more children succeeding, that just means there are fewer succeeding children down the road. (laughs) And if we're thinking about everybody, Mm. how do we really manage the fact that there's going to be massive variations in achievement? There's going to be massive variations in results. 
I think that's a massive issue that we're not grappling with because yeah. it's all the talk about success. Everybody can succeed. It's just yeah. not true. It's a lie. Yeah, that's something I struggle with as well. You know, I think if you are on the left politically, mm-hmm. it's sometimes seen as very taboo to critique the state school system because mm-hmm. the idea yeah. is that it's for everyone and everyone, everyone can yes. have an equal shot. And I think, yeah. it, again, like if a third of you have to fail, it seems unbearably <laughs> cruel, really. But you put children, yeah. some of whom will have such a miserable time all the way through. And yeah. then at the end, we say, well, you failed. Yeah, your whole childhood has led yes. us to this failure and yes. so what what then does that you know I know that it, it feels like both we're seeing childhood as a kind of preparation for adulthood which again we could probably discuss for a whole other yeah. conversation and then at the end of it we say well actually you failed so what does that what a terrible do? way to start your adult life yeah what a terrible thing to do really and and again, even worse than that, we locate that in those young people. Mm. So we and they leave school not just thinking this was because I didn't work hard enough, it's because I didn't try hard enough. And yeah. you'll hear that in adults later on in life. You talk to adults, even adults who've been very successful later, they'll say, "Oh, I was no good at school. I, you know, I just was lazy." They'll they'll take it onto themselves as I didn't try hard enough, or I didn't work hard enough, and it's such a poisonous message to be giving our young people. Yeah, rather than being angry and saying the school yes, just failed, failed me. me. It took <laughs> yes. my, my childhood years. <laughs> exactly. And, and it yeah. gave me nothing back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a very good point. It is, it is awful. And as you say, you know, it's not just for children at either end of the kind of spectrum, but it's it's really everyone who mm. if you're doing well, even if you're getting on you know, we need to change our model of education for everyone to thrive. And this is why I love your book you know because you do set so beautifully out an alternative model of education which is self-directed education um and I'm sure that most people listening to this conversation will have some idea but just in case anyone doesn't can you give us a sort of a short description of how you elevator pitch yes (laughs) self-directed yes so the way I define self-education is education where the learner is in charge of what they're learning how they're learning it and that they can stop when they've had enough Mm. those are the key things that I'm always looking for and I think the in fact the one that most people have most problems with can be the stopping when they've had enough Mm. or not or wanting and I and I actually see the thing so when I'm looking for anything for my children the key thing I'm looking for is are they allowed to leave yes can they go and to me that is the pivotal point that makes the difference between is this coercive or is it not because once you've got the once you've got into the factor that those children can choose not to be there you know I don't mean that they have to be able to literally walk out the school building and go home because that is tricky on many levels safeguarding everything but I mean can they say you know what this isn't this class isn't for me I'm going to go and sit in the library or I'm going to go and run around Mm. in the playground is that possible and I know and there are educational settings in which that is possible and it seems it's the thing that just can transform young people's experience because it's it shifts so much because at the, once once a child knows that they can leave they know that they're choosing to be there for yeah. a start but also once the teacher or adult knows that the children can leave then the onus is on that teacher or adult to make it interesting and engaging yes. as opposed to I'm going to force them you know their role is to be here and do what they're told and I'm just going to do it yeah so it transforms everything in my opinion and that's what I see as self-direction so it's not about unschooling is obviously one particular kind of self-direction and and that's at home but but I think unschooling people can sometimes get the idea that informal learning and self-directed education are the same thing and I don't see them as the same thing at all I think in childhood perhaps up to puberty much of the way children choose to learn is usually informal they'll choose to learn things you know they will learn things because they're really interested in that thing and a lot of learning will come about as an incidental thing so for example a child might really really want to be able to read the chat in minecraft and so they start to learn how to read because they want to be able to type things to each other and that kind of thing but they're not setting out to learn how to read they're not thinking I must learn to read in the way that school the school system says it's time to learn to read now you're four or five it's time to learn to read that in those early years, and by early years, I do mean up to puberty at least, most of the learning that self-directed children do, in my experience, is 
through their following their interest through play through exploring things they don't necessarily set out goals this is what I want to do and then as they go through through puberty and into adolescence I see a big shift and in fact this was one of the things that really drove me to write my books because I felt like I was seeing this shift and I couldn't see anybody writing about that Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any research on it so I don't think there are any studies that I can really draw on it's just my conversations I've had with families what I've observed in my own children and also what I know about the neuroscience so there is a neuroscientific evidence about based on it which is that our brains change as we go into adolescence there's a big change and that change actually we know now it goes between age 10 and the age and age 25 yeah and one of the things that changes there's lots of stuff that changes but one of the things that changes is our ability to work towards a goal our ability to think about the future so adolescents start to think things like I would like to be able to program a computer game in order to do that I need to learn some coding and I'll do that coding for my future goal Mm. children under about 10 they're really bad at doing that they just can't really hold that future goal in mind you know, not in a sort of longer term way. So schools try to make them do that. Schools say, we're going to learn to read. So therefore you need to learn your phonics. Mm. But for the child, there's no connection there really, because this reading is like years in the future, way off there. And, you know, the the, getting the difference between Bert and Pert or Kurt right now doesn't really connect. But when you get to say 10, 11, 12, I can I've really seen that difference in young people that I know about and have worked with where they're suddenly thinking okay actually I want to be able to do this I'm going to do these things that maybe I wouldn't have necessarily chosen to do because I've got that future goal and I've that self-directed as well so sorry that's a longer answer you asked for a short one I've given you no but that's great and what I really like is I think often when we talk about self-directed education you know, you see lots of conversations online about either unschooling or more formal self-directed education settings. Often the thing which gets talked about really well is the autonomy part, which you do talk about in your book. But then what I love is that you say that it's not just, you know, you also need, I think you talk about supportive relationships. Yes. And opportunities as well. This isn't just about saying, right, go on, off you go and educate yourself. This is also having those deep relationships with people who can you know work with you as a mentor as a supporter as a loving parent you know whoever you have in your life who's able to do that to help you succeed in your goals and especially you know if you have neurodivergent children or sometimes they might help find that they need like a little bit of help staying on track for example or remembering what they had planned or you know it's not just about saying right go off and do it and having those opportunities that they can take up and then as crucially you say also they can leave those opportunities if they're no longer interested or no longer working for them I like that kind of holistic definition of self-directed education because I think we often forget that actually that self is taking part within a community, whether it's a learning community or a family community or, you know, a home education community. Yes. It's not just leaving them to get on with it, which is what people always, that, that the, my sort of thinking about that came from talking about self-directed education in quite traditional education settings, you know, like with teachers basically and say, what do you mean? And they would always throw back at me. So you just leave them to get on with it. Well, I've tried leaving kids to get on with it and they don't do anything. You know, it's like, no, it's absolutely the opposite of trying, of leaving them to get on with it. You know, particularly in those primary school years, if you talk to Mm -hmm. any home educating parent who's doing self-direct, who's unschooling or doing self-direct education, it's so involved Mm -hmm. and you're there, you know, you're providing things and you're all the time thinking, what, how are we going to help? Where, how are we going to help them expand in the next thing they might yeah. want to do it's a very much interactive process Absolutely. and it's as if it's as if as a culture we think if it isn't about control if it's not about teaching formal education then there's nothing you know and yeah. I think we have this problem with parenting as well that we think either parenting is controlling and discipline and structure and all that or it's nothing it's yeah. permissive is this like this dirty word you know permissive parenting anything goes don't yeah. you know neglectful even it's the, it's like it's all or nothing literally yeah. and I think there's this map and I, I talked to so many parents actually who this this goes for parenting as well as self-directed mm-hmm. education they'll be like okay so we know we don't want to use rewards and punishments so we know we don't want to do this behavioral approach but I don't know what to do instead mm. what are we doing are we just doing nothing all the time and I think yeah. that that's where the book really came out of it's like I wanted to give a name to this nothing 
because yes. people would say well we just don't do anything and I'd be like you're doing loads you're just not noticing it yeah and when we dismiss what we do as nothing then the world will see it as nothing as well yes. and it's absolutely not nothing it's loads absolutely and I think especially when you know I see both in my work and just from sort of wider I guess being aware of sort of some of the issues the home education community faces what I do notice is there's a lot of particularly mothers female mm-hmm. caregivers yeah you take on a lot and you know sometimes parenting support like home educating or unschooling neurodivergent children can sometimes come with a lot of emotional work and a lot of emotional That's labor yeah, and yeah. I think to dismiss it as well you're just leaving them to get on with it really invalidates it's a so lot dismissive. of work that women <laughs> often are putting yes. in Absolutely. I agree completely. And I think a lot of the work with neurodivergent children in particular is emotion regulation and emotion mm-hmm. stabilization. I think that is the unrecognized work of parenting generally yeah. and and of schooling as well. You know that for for so many neurodivergent children, it's managing their emotions in different situations that is the challenge for them. Yeah. And they express that in all sorts of different ways. Their behavior is all sorts of different ways. But really, it's about how do I manage my reactions to this situation? Mm. And their parent, if you're home educating, your parent is right in there helping you manage, helping the child manage their reactions to each situation. Mm. The parent's always doing this second guessing. Oh, gosh, that's going to be a busy group. I don't know if we're going to manage that. You know, do we manage a bit more structure, a bit less structure? Oh, my goodness. It's a constant, constant process really of emotion regulation and helping that child regulate their emotions but if it goes well completely invisible because if it goes well that child will be emotionally regulated and happy and doing things it's when it goes badly that it becomes visible and then everybody tends to blame the parent or the child (laughs) so it's like this kind of there's no way of winning with this with that bit but I I think so many parents listening to that will feel this real sense of like feeling very seen and validated by what you've just said because I think that's exactly right you know when when it's all going well no one's going to give you a pat on the shoulder and say wow you know all of that like those weeks or days of planning and thinking and carefully setting all of that groundwork in place has gone really well for you and like you say if it doesn't go well then there is a bit of you know it's a side eye of like that's the fallout (laughs) yeah that, that parent is clearly hasn't got it all together or uh, even if it goes well, people will tell you that you didn't need to put in all that extra work. Yeah, why are you, you know, worrying? They'll say, yeah, exactly. Oh, you see, they're fine. You should just relax. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the only reason they're fine is because of all the, I'm not relaxed. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. That is so true. Um, uh, this is a very big question, I think, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you get asked a lot. Obviously, our system now is not fit for purpose for Mm -hmm. most children. And a lot of parents who have children who are struggling deeply with school, who would perhaps love to do self-directed education, either themselves at home or in a self-directed education setting. As you say, I think there are more and more of these settings now. Mm -hmm. It seems to be they are getting more popular. There seems to be more recognition of the role that they can play. But obviously they won't always be accessible either practically or financially. Yeah. yeah. And but as we discussed, the solution is not necessarily an individual one. Yeah. Because there is so little that individuals can do. Yeah. But what can you know, if you're a family who says, Look, my child can't bear school, but I have mm. to work, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm completely you need stuck. It for childcare. Absolutely. What what yeah. What do you do? What would you talk? What did you say to a parent like that? Because it's really hard. Yeah. yeah. So the first thing that I'd say is, are there any things you could do with school? Are schools yeah. willing to, to talk? Are school is school willing to think about being flexible? Schools vary enormously. Mm. Some schools are absolutely not. I've talked to parents whose schools have made amazing, have really bent over backwards to make things better for an individual child or to introduce elements of autonomy and flexibility for an individual child. So it's worth bearing in mind that even if the school says we can't do anything about this, there might be another school that would be able to because they definitely vary enormously, even within the mainstream state system. The other thing that I often say to parents is if a child, if your child is not happy at school, 
and school isn't going well, it's really easy as a parent to get really drawn into that. And mm. everything in that child's life can start to be about can we make school work? Or so, yeah. so, you know, it's really common for me to hear that parents will be spending hours trying to get their children to do their homework, that if they have any extra money, they might be spending that on tutors. So yeah. if the child's really struggling in their subjects at school, they might come home and have maths and English, or they might do mm -hmm. maths or extra, you know, extra tuition. So it's, and it's sort of like everything becomes about how do we can we do something that makes school better yes and that means the entirety of the child's life becomes about that Ooh. and it and also the parent can kind of get drawn into that because schools will often try and use parents as a way to get the children to behave differently so yeah. the parents so it can start to feel a bit like the parent is the representative of school at home mm. so when the child say complains about school the parent may well feel obligated to say oh it's not that bad or you know and I've even seen policies from schools which have said that parents should avoid um you know saying anything negative about the school because this will affect the child it's like yes but you're basically setting parents up there to not be able to empathize with their children absolutely so the yeah. child says i you know i really don't like mrs x and it's a completely natural response for the teacher the parent to say something oh you know they're not that bad they're really nice really so you push back yeah. all the time on their emotional response mm. so i think one thing that you can do is just try and be a non unconditional listener about yeah. what it's like and just empathize with their feelings not feel that you have to correct them so just say yeah, that sounds really tough or I feel really angry with people this sometimes as well and you don't have to agree with them that Mrs X is really awful to just be able to say that feels hard wow that sounds like a really tough day that you had so mm -hmm. you just empathize with them and then the other thing is to try and provide outside school some time when they can feel good about themselves when they can exercise their autonomy and they can have some opportunities to do something that isn't about schoolwork. so if you know if school is a place where you don't feel good about yourself and you feel stupid for example which quite a lot of children unfortunately say to me that they feel stupid at school see if you can find things for them to do where that's not going to be the same so yeah. it you know it might be it might when they're younger, it might be just making sure there's lots of time for free play, it, you know, making sure you value that in the way that you might value them doing extra maths. And for some children, that'll be on a video game. And you might you want to value that as well. Value the things that they value is a, yeah. just a really important thing of, you know, so you're really interested in Pokemon. Tell me about it. I can see you're building a house in Minecraft. Can I come in? Yeah. You know, joining them where they are right then. Um. And as they get older, looking for opportunities of places that they could go and be doing things where they get that sense. So I'm doing this because I like it, whether, you know, I hear about it being music often for some young yeah. people, um, thing exercise, but but not kind of competitive exercise, things yeah. like climbing or bouldering, just places that they can go and they can feel that I'm doing this because I want to do it. It's not competitive. I'm not being ranked on it. And I can see myself as I can feel that I'm a person who's able to do things. Mm. So you can look for those opportunities specifically out of school. I think that's really powerful advice. And I think sometimes just being that person that, you know, it just needs to be one or two people in a child's life. Sometimes it can make such a difference of just yes, saying, absolutely. I believe you, I trust you. Yes, I think so exactly. often as parents, we are forced to kind of almost gaslight our children and tell them, but it's really okay when it's really <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes, it's not okay, but it's okay. And they can pick yeah. it up too often, you know. They think children children know that we're putting on a front in front of them. And I think yeah. it's yeah, at some point we need to change that. But yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also wonder about the long-term effects on your relationship with your child as well. If all through their childhood you've told them, well, you've got to do this thing and I can see that it's awful, but like, you know, it's it's good for you and it'll it's not yeah. as bad as you think it is. Yes. Are you gonna be able yes, to in a way on in life? That's a really good example. In a way, I think sometimes it can help just to be upfront with your children and say, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that you have to go and that it's not good at the oh. moment. We can't find a better solution right now. Yeah. We're doing what we can, but we can't find a better solution. And we do need you to be somewhere so that we can be at work. I think that's OK. I think that's better than either the things that people say tend to be yes this is for your own good or stop why are you making such a fuss about it nobody mm. else do or they say it's the real world and in the real world we have to get used to doing things we don't like which yeah. I, I again find a really unhelpful belief 
to be sort of teaching your children, particularly because actually in the real world, um, by which I mean the world after school, um, yes, we do all do things that we don't like generally, but we generally do them for our own purpose. It's actually quite unusual to be doing things you really don't like simply because somebody else has decided you should do it with mm. no payoff for you, no money, no, no purpose. Yeah. No, you're not, you're the only reason you're doing it is because somebody says you are eight years old and all eight year olds have to be in this year group and have to be in this yeah. school and you better get used to it. Actually, that doesn't really happen in adult life, except if in particular circumstances like being in prison or being made to do particular things. But even if you're in a job you don't like, for example, A, you're generally paid for it, which is a good thing in itself. But also you actually do usually have the opportunity. You know, there are possibilities of leaving a job, finding a different one. There isn't this same kind of years stretching out in front of you of education in which there will be no choice. Yeah. Yeah. And again, another thing we could potentially talk about one day, but probably not today, is like I've been very interested by this idea of like, should we pay children? You know, is this what we should do? Should we give children some kind of this idea that, you know, we sort of see education as this like deferred benefit to society that one day children will grow up and they will contribute economically from being in the workplace. And we pay teachers to secure that kind of future gain. But yet the only people who aren't getting paid and supported in that is the children right now. So an interesting idea. interesting one. You should have you looked at the literature about the... The, the, we have this idea that people work for pay, but actually um, pay doesn't generally improve the quality of what they do. Mm, yeah. You know, so that if you're looking at motivation and that's a whole other area, self-determination theory and why we do what we do. Um, you know, there's this kind of idea that we have in society that, for example, if you increase people's pay, they'll work harder and do better. But actually, that isn't necessarily the case. That yeah. The people who do their jobs really well are generally doing it in spite of the pay almost they're doing it because they love it and the pay is good but it's not but once you're in a situation where you are only doing your job for the pay and I have been a couple of jobs like that I don't think it actually works well in terms of doing the work well no well as a writer I think I can very much recognize that feeling of doing something because you're passionate yes because you know it doesn't bring very much much money in absolutely absolutely. no and I think that's what's so interesting I think is that adults we we do stuff because for a passion project all the time people do the most incredibly difficult things and you know actually if somebody said to me I'll pay you a million pounds to write a book I don't think it would result in a better book to the ones I've written in fact I think it would put a lot of pressure on me and I would immediately be like oh my goodness and also I'd be like what book do you want me to write why are you giving me a million pounds for it you know it would it was corrupt it would cut corrupt everything so or you know people who run a marathon mm. they don't really run a marathon for the, maybe they get some sponsorship but they're not yeah. running a marathon for the payoff there's there's a kind of intrinsic this mm. is something I want to do this has value to me and I think that's more important and I think that's where we should be putting our effort in schools how are we yes. getting things in place so that the, the, what children do in school has value to them which brings exactly. us that beautifully to that self-directed education, which is why we exactly. need more of that. Yes. And I think the fact that we do now have some self-directed education settings does show that we could do this yeah. on a wider basis. Absolutely. And it is possible. Like it's it the is a will. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a lack of imagination and will. And I think, you know, for me, my work focuses a lot on adultism. For me, it really focuses, you know, it's it feels like a symptom of adultism. We don't really mm-hmm. believe that children should have the right to direct their lives. We don't believe that they're capable. We don't believe that they're competent. We think that they would probably do dangerous things or that they would waste. They would make bad choices. Yes, waste their time is a good example. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, so we know best as adults. Yes. Even though what we are seeing is really decisive evidence that actually we don't know best. And that for a lot of children, we're making horrific choices for them. But I really hope that you know, there is this big resistance movement of educators and parents and children, young people, Mm. who are all starting to say there is another way that's possible. And I think that has to start with listening to young people's voices and listening to what they want from the education system. And it just feels wild to me that this is a system supposedly for children, which doesn't take children's views or accounts into, into practice. 
yes as you say a kind of adult benevolence is built into the system Mm. isn't it and I think you've got you've really hit the nail on the head there with this sort of waste of time thing and I think it's because the interests of children again really certainly up to puberty and beyond but are often things that adults think of as trivial Mm. unimportant so it's easy for adults to dismiss children's choices because if you allow your children to choose what they do then they will choose to spend their time doing things like Pokemon. They will choose to spend their time playing that they're a Power Ranger or that is what they will do. And if you're looking out for the things that adults think children should be doing, like maths and English, then it's going to look deficient. Mm. going to look at it and go, well, look at them just wasting their time. Um, Because we see the interests of childhood as trivial and, and not worthwhile. Yeah. And I mean, just on Pokemon... I was talking to my husband about this. My daughter is newly interested in it because a lot of her home ed friends are interested yeah. in it. So we've now entered the world of cards and Netflix yeah. series and in- encyclopedias. Oh, yes. My husband was like, it's, he's got a very mathsy brain. And he was yeah. just like, there's so much maths in Pokemon. I know, it's amazing. Pokemon is amazing. A whole classification system, yes. so much. And then there's all the evolved species that grow. Yes. It, it is amazing. <laughs> But yes, seen as utterly a waste of time because we see that information as a waste of time. Whereas we see the information that we make children acquire as not a waste of time, which Mm. is just so, who decided that actually? You know, because what matters to me when I say is something a waste of time or not, is is it a waste of time to that person? Does that person see this as interesting and engaging? And if they do, then it's not a waste of their time. Yeah, and equally, you know, we often I think we're now starting to recognize that you know working all the time never resting is bad for people and there seems to be a real pushback against this idea that never resting always being productive and you know now if I relax and read my novel it seems like well done you're taking care of yourself you're prioritizing (laughs) your needs whereas when children want to just veg out and do whatever it is that they're interested in it's like oh yeah shouldn't they be doing something more interesting exactly because they don't make the right the choices that adults think Mm. they should be making and I've had that I've had teachers say that to me as well they say you know but if I let them make choices they make bad choices and I'm like well actually I say to them at that point what better time to practice making bad choices than childhood because honestly (laughs) why do we spend childhood stopping them making choices and then they get to university when they are suddenly making choices Mm. and it's the first time yeah. And they make bad choices all over the place, which have often much, much longer term consequences mm. than the bad choices in quotes that a nine year old might make. So why not make your choices when you're still sort of protected? You've got a buffer between you and the world. You know, you don't have to earn a living. <laughs> you don't, yeah, you've got your so parents true. to help you pick up the pieces. Yes. <laughs> And I think also we have this language of choices and actually for a lot of neurodivergent children, it isn't a choice. You know, I was constantly getting told off for talking in class (laughs) and chatting or like swinging on my chair. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, these are not things that I consciously was like, there is a rule. I see it. I will break (laughs) it. You know, this is at primary school. I didn't want to be told off. But, you know, this isn't a a conscious choice. And I think this is something which... A lot of parents really struggle with when they're told by their teacher, well, so-and-so had to miss a minute of his playtime because, you know, he made some bad choices today. <laughs> it's like, especially if you have a kid who's autistic or who's neurodivergent so, in another way, it's just... It doesn't make unabless. any sense. Yes, it's, a, it's as if we think, you know, six-year-olds are making the choice to be six. Yeah. And <laughs> if only they could just make better choices, they'd be more like a, uh, you know, like a 26 year old. And then we'd all be fine. Why do they keep making such frivolous choices and being six? It is like that, though. I think it it's is. not just neurodivergent kids. I think it's the, yeah. the whole of school. It's like if we see something as a choice, then we can blame the child for not doing that yeah. choice. And then we can punish them and try and make them make a different choice. Mm. And I would agree with you. I think that kind of thing, it's not about choices. The the place where I think choices are so important is about what do I want to be doing right now? And I do think there's choice there. And I think for for all kids, you know, it's, what am I really interested in? Am I really interested in washing mm-hmm. machines? And do I want to actually go and watch that washing machine? Because that is what the most interesting thing for me yeah. is right now. I think, and I think we should be nurturing those choices in our kids, but particularly mm-hmm. in our neurodivergent children, because they are the ones who they are more likely 
to be sort of submitted to control because if their behavior is more different then there's more there's more clamping down sometimes mm. not for everybody but for some kids yeah. it can be you know we particularly need to push you into this mold mm-hmm. because your choices are particularly untrustworthy yes <laughs> you know it's um yeah anyway there's a whole other area there that I think would be interesting to talk about but I think no, I think that's absolutely true I'm just thinking about a, a child I know who's in year two who was told at the beginning of the year their parent we're going to be very firm this year with this autistic child who is already you know having to use so much energy just to fit in with a classroom and the idea that like we're especially going to be firm so they know the rules and they know that they're being treated like everyone else following the rules it's like anyway yes it feels like a as if that lack of firmness is the problem that's basically that is the problem exactly it's a real death of imagination I think Mm. so often Anyway, we have spoken for so long. I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. And I know that so many people will listen to it and feel very seen in what you've been saying. Um, For anyone who doesn't already follow you online, where can people find you? Facebook. I am Dr. Naomi Fisher on Facebook. I am on Twitter, but I don't post that much there anymore. Naomi C. Fisher, I think, on Twitter. I have a Substack. Um, which is a newsletter so people who don't like social media and it comes out once a week and you just get an an email from me to your to your email to your inbox Um, and that's Naomi C. Fisher it's Think Again on Substack so those would be the places or if you just go to my website which is naomifisher.co.uk it links to all of those things right and you're on Instagram as well aren't you actually you're right I'm also on Instagram I'm also on LinkedIn now (laughs) I think about it (laughs) I'm on lots of places but yes (laughs) and I have to say to anyone who it doesn't follow your Substack, it's brilliant because you often post quite short posts as well which are really digestible um they often give me pause to think in my inbox in the middle of the day when they arrive so I really appreciate them so thank you brilliant thank you so much (laughs) and your book a different way to learn is out now it is presumably buy it in all the places people normally buy books I think so yes and if you if you go to the Jessica Kingsley site and put in the code nfisher20 you can get 20% off it oh amazing wonderful thank you very much and actually Jessica Kingsley published some great other books on neurodiversity as well they do um so you can make the most of that and yeah kit yourself out a great library (laughs) thank you so much Naomi thank you Eloise it's been lovely to talk to you oh thank you thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed our conversation why not sign up to small places on Substack where you'll get podcasts essays Q&As and many more resources straight to your inbox You can join for free or subscribe for just £5 a month to support my work and help me bring you more conversations just like this one. I'll see you next week. Bye for now.